I'm Marina Trambu, and I'm the founder and CEO of Equo. And I beat the often path by launching a sustainable brand that is 100% plastic free um, and compostable into a category that is extremely unsexy that no one ever thinks about and hoping to make people think twice about their choices in a straw, a fork, or any other single-use item. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories, often with an eco-friendly, earth-forward slant. I'm looking for those lives that make us rethink what success means, people who have gone way off of the beaten path and found success to help us all reevaluate the priorities in our own lives and careers. My guest today is Marina Tranvu, and when it comes to an outside-the-box success story, hers is truly remarkable. She worked for years as a corporate marketer working for and with major brands that you know. She was supposed to be just visiting Vietnam from her native Canada, but then the pandemic happened, effectively trapping her in another country. Rather than give up the fight, she doubled down building a pandemic business for eco-friendly straws and eco-friendly alternatives to other everyday single-use plastic items. Now, can you imagine being stuck somewhere in the pandemic and then using that to build a business? It's pretty wild and admirable right there. Marina's story is proof that fulfillment can sometimes come from events that seem negative at the outset or beyond our control. And there's so much good in her story. So here's Marina Tranvu, the founder of Equo, E-Q-U-O, plastic-free products for everyday life. Well, I'm very, very excited. You tick all of the boxes for somebody that we like to have on this show. So first of all, thank you for being here, Marina. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, This is like an awesome opportunity. I'm a big fan of the show. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now, I should start this by saying that I know this fact. I know that Marvin Chester invented the straw in 1880. Do we like Marvin Chester or not? I think we do. You know, there's a lot of great uses for straws. Um, You know, on an everyday basis, it just makes drinking drinks easier, especially if you don't want to spill. Let's say you're driving and, you know, you want to take a little sip. You can't always kind of bring the full cup up um, without it spilling. I mean, there's some of us who love to drink drinks without ruining our lipstick or maybe staining our teeth as well, you know, because that can be very expensive to maintain. And then um, for other people who either maybe have some disabilities or um, maybe hospitalized and aren't able to kind of get up and drink, you know, straws really do help with that too. So I think um, I would say we're thankful that he invented it. Um, But I think, um, unfortunately, humans uh, have a tendency to kind of take things that are good and kind of sometimes turn them into not so good things. Something that was good and turn it into something not so good. Well, how about this? All right, so we've got the original inventor, Marvin Chester, 1880. What about Joseph Friedman, inventor of the bendy straw? Who's better? Oh, I think the bendy straw is like that next step up. Um, it's the evolution. That was, yeah, that was a game changer, you know, for kids, right. again, um, for people who uh, may have some disabilities or some uh, difficulties, that bendy straw makes all the difference. So I think, I don't think he's better than the original inventor, but I think he took it to the next uh, like level with straws. Well, it's very important that we get this out of the way because our audience, they really, really care deeply about straws and straw history. So I wanted to make sure that we covered the background first. But in all seriousness, tell us about you and your mission and your company. And how did you end up on this very unique path that you're on? 
Yeah, I mean, it was a very interesting and strange sort of path. Um, so I started Equo, uh, which, um, as I kind of mentioned, um, is a sustainable brand that provides 100% plastic-free and compostable solutions for everyday single-use plastic items. So basically, anything that you use once and kind of throw away that might be plastic, we're trying to create some sort of solution for. So we started off with straws made out of different materials like grass, rice, coconut, sugarcane, and coffee. And then we've also branched out into utensils and dishware and bags as well. And so the goal here is uh, to replace anything that is single-use plastic. And I know that's kind of like a, a weird mission, um, but really kind of the research tells us that these uh, materials are very, very harmful for the earth. On average, uh, single-use uh, plastic item or product is used for about 15 to 20 minutes or less and then thrown away and it lasts on the earth for about 100 to 200 years. So when you kind of see the cost benefit, it really doesn't make sense for using that uh, piece of item. So um, that's really what the mission of the business that I started is. Um, and how I really got here was um, I actually had moved to Vietnam um, about three years ago. I was only meant to stay here for about a year. You know, I had a full life back in Canada, in Toronto, where I was born and raised. Um, and I kind of got stuck here during the pandemic. And then one thing led to another. I started going to a lot of coffee shops. I started noticing these interesting things in my drinks I'd never seen before. It turned out it was a grass straw, which I didn't even know was possible to make like a straw out of grass or rice or anything. Um, and that's when it started to kind of um, turn this sort of thinking about why isn't this available everywhere else in the world. And so that's what really sparked the idea. And then uh, coincidentally, at the same time, my nephew was born. And I don't know what it is about babies. I think maybe they're super cute or whatever it is. But when they come into uh, your life and into the world, they kind of make you rethink things. And one of the things I really wanted to do was to be able to hopefully show uh, my nephew Vancouver, where I grew up and where it's beautiful and natural and the rest of the world, and hopefully give him a chance to grow up in this world and see it as beautifully as I saw it and not have to, you know, move to Mars. So that was really kind of the motivation behind starting this business. Not have to move to Mars. That's great. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's my motivation for everything. Do we really have to move to Mars? I don't feel like it. But, you know, we knew that straws could be used or grass could be used as straws. Have you seen James Bond? I'm pretty sure there's at least one James Bond where he's in a lake of some kind breathing through a straw that is a piece yeah. of grass. Maybe that's yeah, exactly. an accurate thing. Uh, but am I correct in understanding that you were stuck in Vietnam and that is how you came up with your idea for your business? That's a crazy I mean story right there. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was right before the pandemic. I mean, I was meant to go back um, again. I had a life, uh, you know, in in Toronto and in Canada with my family, my friends, and you know, a significant other. I had a full life there, and so the um, the idea of me moving to Vietnam was really just for one year. Um, I was just helping out my my parents, especially my father, who had fallen sick, unfortunately, um, and so I had to go ahead and, and come to Vietnam to help him. With some things and so that's really what brought me here but you know the pandemic happened i actually missed my best friend's wedding which made me really really sad because of the pandemic um and then basically i was stuck here for two years because uh vietnam actually closed its borders uh, to the rest of the world so if i left at any point i wouldn't be able to come back and there were just 
certain things I had to help my family with here. And so that kind of that, that event, and I'm sure this happened to everyone else, that event really impacted my life and really directed me towards focusing on my business. Because for two years, I couldn't see my family or my friends either. So it, it helped with kind of channeling my energy. But that's good because so many people, myself included, during the pandemic, they use it as an excuse just to watch more Netflix, binging Game of Thrones. Most people wrote off the whole year and you're over there saying, I'm getting busy. I'm going to get to work. So that's really making lemonade from a bunch of lemons, it seems like. Were you in the beginning disappointed? Were you happy to be stuck or was it sad? How was that emotionally for you? Um, I would say I didn't expect it to be honest with you just like uh, everyone else in the world i don't think anyone expected that it would last for two years you know i think everyone thought it might have been like you know the swine yeah and counting <laughs> um, i think they thought it might have been like the swine flu or or something like that where you know it might be concentrated to one area or it might be just for like a little period of time and that's it and so um i kept hoping that oh next month next month i'll be able to travel and then in, you know two plus years later it, it still hasn't gone away and so I don't think I had planned for it. I just kept on hoping for the best and kept on hoping that whatever I did, um, you know, during this time, I'll eventually get to see my friends and my family and then hopefully come out of it with maybe a cool business that that might help the planet too. So I didn't predict any of it. And so I, I just kept on hoping, just like I think the rest of the world. You thought if if everything goes well, at least I've got this thing. Okay, yeah. so you're sitting in a cafe and you're drinking from these grass straws and you say, why doesn't the rest of the world do this? I love that moment where people decide to go in on this because you could solve single-use plastic from a number of angles. You could try to clean up bags or grocery bags or hot sauce packets or whatever, but mm -hmm. you chose straws. So what? how did that go from the moment that you thought, hey, I've got a kid around me now, I want to do something for the future to I'm actually going to lock this in as my actual business idea. Yeah, well, you know what? It was, um, unfortunately, it was a lot of like Netflix, a lot of like watching TV shows. Yeah. I had seen a brand uh, called Lollywear that had actually gone on to Shark Tank in the US. I took a look to see where they were afterwards, what their progress was. Um, took a look at Kickstarter and then took a look at just why grass straws or rice straws worked in, in the US or in Canada, you know, where, where I'm very familiar uh, with that environment. I just, I didn't understand why if there was such a cool invention that replaced all plastic, it made just so much more sense and it was able to decompose in a few months or you can just throw it in your backyard and it'll disappear. Why we weren't using that as a solution and still using plastic, which we've heard every single day, every single month is killing X amount of whales and sea otters and marine life. And now we're eating plastic in, in the fish that we eat and the seafood that we eat. Like, I didn't understand why that wasn't, um, you know, translating into a solution overseas and just all over the world. Um, and from my background, you know, I'm a marketer by trade, uh, especially a CPG and, and a product uh, marketer by trade. And so um, as a marketer, one of the things that you love to do is just solve problems, you know, solve why people aren't doing certain things or why people aren't behaving a certain way. So that's really what drove me down this kind of rabbit hole. Like, okay, why not grass straws? Like what else is out there? Okay, there's rice straws, there's coffee straws, there's sugar cane straws. Why aren't people using them? And so that's really what drove everything. So it was kind of a snowball effect. And straws just seemed like the biggest thing to start with because, you know, in about 2018, it was like the biggest thing about the turtle, you know, having the straw pulled out of its nose and that went viral everywhere. So I thought, okay, let's go back to that and see what, what kind of 
created that movement, why people were so passionate about it, and see if we can kind of restart that conversation and use it as momentum for other products that are, might be single use as well. That sounds great. So when you decided on straws, how did you go about literally sourcing that or creating your actual product? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, one of the things I learned about Vietnam uh, is, and about Asia in general is like, if you want to find something or create something or do something, anything's really possible. Like it's a great country of innovation of, of like creating solutions. And so um, in order to kind of figure out how, how to like, you know, go about all of it, the first thing I did was I just started visiting all these cafes and asking like, hey, where do you get this from? And where is it sourced from? And then um, in Vietnam, it's all about like relationships and someone knowing someone. <laughs> That's how you find things. You don't always find things on the internet or on Facebook or anything. You just find it by talking to people. And so that's what happened. So I talked to someone, they talked to someone, they said, oh, this person knows this person, traveled out to like factories, did three hour rides, four hour rides, eight hour drives out to factories, out to manufacturers. And I found out that there were like pockets and areas in Vietnam, just like all over Asia. Um, where people actually manufacture in like neighborhoods or regions. So one region might be specializing in like coconuts and one might specialize in, you know, rice. And these regions are very, very, very uh, adept at kind of utilizing all materials in a multitude of ways. You'll have, you know, a coconut area that uses literally every single part of the coconut, the shell to create bowls, you know, the flesh uh, for food and candies. You'll have the juice for drinks. Then you'll have like the oil from the coconut to put into cars or motorbikes. So they're super resourceful. And so I went to visit these areas and that's how I started sourcing things. And then after that, it was just having more conversations with people in the industry because all manufacturers kind of know each other. And that's how we started to source more and more of our product. That's cool. Did you know that uh, coconut area is the name of the new wing at Disneyland? Oh, really? No, no. <laughs> are, are you being sarcastic? No, no, no. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> but when you said that, it's just like, oh, coconut area. That sounds like yeah. fun. I like coconut yeah. area. Or maybe yeah, that's a like club. a full city. A full yeah, city, a full city for coconuts. coconut. Everything's coconut, and they're super proud of it. Coconut cosmetics, coconut like um, like candy, drinks, everything's yeah. made out of coconut. It's um, an area called Ben J in, in Vietnam. So if you come over here and, and you love coconuts, it's a great place That's to go. If you're area. allergic, you want to stay away. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So when you're looking for the area that's right for you, did you look in the straw area or the grass area? <laughs> Which area had the manufacturers for your business? Yeah. Yeah. No, it was just basically based on material. So uh, when I say coconut, it's like that's like the raw material. The raw material. In that area. Yeah. yeah, that's grown there. Yeah. So like there's an area that just grows a ton of coconuts. And then there is also where they are very resourceful in making different products out of coconut. There's also an area in Vietnam that's very famous called uh, Dong Tap uh, in Vietnam, which is a full on rice area. So everything is made of rice and you'll have a rice farm next to a rice farm next to another rice farm. So you'll have uh, people who produce straws, rice straws next all next to each other. And there'll be like eight or 10 of them and they're all neighbors and all making the same sort of thing just because it's, it's uh, you know, a very agricultural area. Yeah. And that's where you found, you said, hey, guys, can you make me... Now, wh- where did you find your first success? Which version? Rice straw or grass? Um, it was a grass straw, honestly. Okay. I thought that one was the easiest to do because um, the grass straw, it's just literally just grown out in the field. It's a, it's, a, it's a raw material that's very natural. It's grown. Once it gets to a certain height, 
then you can cut it down and then you can basically dry it, go through a cleaning process, and then you have a straw. So it's not like it's a, a very difficult process. Some, and in some cases, though, people don't even care about drying it. They're like, I just want the fresh product, just clean it. And then you'll have a fresh grass straw. So it'll literally look like a nice leaf uh, in your drink. So that was kind of the one that made the most sense. And it was a very sort of um, natural process and very sort of hand, um, hand done process. And so that was the first product. Then afterwards we went to rice where, you know, here rice can be just regular rice and you can have rice powder, rice flour, um, and then you can actually make rice pasta. So pasta that's, you know, gluten-free out of rice. And then naturally, like when you make rice pasta, you have to mold into a certain shape and that can also be a mold into straw as well. So that's really how things kind of went. You just visited this, these areas. We talked to people and said, hey, can you make these? And they'll be like, yeah, well, of course we can make them. So that's how things um, kind of happen. Oh, that's fantastic. And would you say that in Vietnam, it's there is a greater focus on sustainable practices? Is there less single-use plastic used over there in general? Or is it largely the same as the West or the U.S.? Um, you know what, I would say, in, in my opinion, um, that it's pretty similar throughout the world. I think everyone understands that sustainability in itself is a very important issue to address. But at the same time, when uh, sometimes there's conversations like, oh, is someone more educated than the other or is someone adopting uh, sustainable practices more than the other? I think in different ways, like here in Vietnam, it's um, and in Asia in general, you know, you always want to use every single part of a material. Um, and so being non-wasteful is an important thing. But whether or not like the focus is on not using single-use plastic is, an, uh, is something that's really important. I think overseas, it's kind of written to law or at least attempting to be written to law. Here, it's not. But people want to do it because it's actually a very inexpensive material or more inexpensive than it might be overseas. So I would say the adoption rate and the education level is pretty similar. I, I wouldn't say that there's a huge difference at all. I think it's just uh, what's causing it and what's forcing people to make a change from plastic material to sustainable material. I think the reasons are different. That makes sense. Yeah. And having the availability of that raw material is key. So maybe yes. that is your area, which brings me into my next question. So you've got this product sourced. You now have an idea. What did you decide to do then to bring that idea to market, being a marketer yourself? Yeah, so I've, I kind of really thought to myself, okay, so is there a reason why people aren't, you know, using these products more? Um, and just through our research and through surveys, what we found out simply was people weren't using these things because they didn't know that it was possible. Just like I didn't know. And like, you know, I, I pride myself in being Vietnamese and Asian and knowing everything that there is to know about Asia. And even I did not know that you know, and through all my trips coming to Asia, that there was something that was made out of grass or rice, or it could be possible to make, you know, a fork out of sugarcane. I, I just didn't know that that was a possibility or available. And so the first real issue was um, just kind of a lack of awareness or education that these materials that were not only durable, but also eco-friendly were available as an alternative to plastic and also paper, which is kind of the secondary sort of uh, material that's used after plastic. So I think that in itself made it a very, very interesting problem to solve. And so then after that, I thought, okay, what else do we need to do to get people to pay attention and then not only be aware of this, but also make the choice, uh, the active choice to switch from plastic over to paper. And I tried to take a look at what were people's pain points about plastic and paper. 
classic, you know, people, no one wants to kill a whale or to kill, you know, like a, an, a bird or, or whatever, um, because they choke on a plastic straw. And so that's a huge factor for people. No one wants to eat the microplastics that, you know, are, are going to the ocean as well. So that's a big factor for people. And then the second one is, you know, uh, we tried to switch over to paper straws, you know, McDonald's tried that and everyone like had everybody this hates kind of, those because they fall yeah, apart. They, yeah, people they're, know they're that soggy. they don't like paper straws. Yeah, we know yeah, that. For absolutely. Sure. Yeah, they're soggy. You have to squeeze them out. And then you have to try to rip them out and hope that little pieces don't fall into your drink. And like, you know, you, you end up eating paper like a child. So, um, so, but, you know, people, they have a really, really, really massive hatred for paper straws. And so we yes. wanted to solve that issue, too. And then on top of that, there is, like, you know, great inventions like the metal straw silicone. But no one wants to carry it around. No one wants to wash it. And no one remembers to do it either. Like, no, like you're not going to pull it out and then be like, hold on, you know, let me go and wash it at the fountain and hopefully, hopefully find a hose, you know. <laughs> and so that's really want, something that we wanted to solve, too, was this whole convenience factor. And so taking that all into account, we knew we found a good product. Now we just had to put it into some packaging. And one of the biggest things I think that um, is getting people's attention right now is we're basically trying to brand a commodity. Um, you know, brand something that is traditionally very unsexy. I, I don't think anyone can really name more than three straw brands or, or even tell me what a straw brand looks like. Um, like, you know, when they're walking down the aisle or recall one, you know? Right. Um, and so that's something that we're trying to do that's very different. We want people to notice, to be aware, and to be able to recall something and to make a, a category um, that was very unsexy that no one ever thought of, thought twice about, very sexy. Um, it's kind of like what Charmin or Royale did for like toilet paper. <laughs> uh, that's what I kind of attuned it to, <laughs> you know? So, so that's what we're trying to do that, that um, to kind of solve the problem and hopefully kind of bring my background into that and building a brand. That makes sense. Well, it seems to me that the easiest possible thing that you could do would be to have partnerships with restaurants and various food service providers, because as a consumer, if it's not a piece of paper that's going to dissolve, I don't really care. I don't think about what the straw is when somebody hands me a drink. I think about it if it's plastic, because that bothers me. Mm -hmm. Some restaurants have handed me a straw that's made of noodles, and that's kind of weird. It sort of works, sort of doesn't. Um, but I think the consumer in that setting, I doubt if they care so much as long as the product works. So is that something that you thought first and foremost? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Our first thought was like, let's go after, you know, partnerships with restaurants and, and coffee shops and chains like this and get them to start using these products. Unfortunately, um, I don't know if I made the smart decision of launching my business during the pandemic, but that's what happened. We launched in 2020, um, actually literally at the beginning of 2020, we launched with a Kickstarter campaign and then started reaching out to restaurants and coffee shops. And slowly, one by one, um, each country, each kind of restaurant chain was just shutting it down. And they were also struggling and pivoting because, you know, they were getting the same traffic um, during the pandemic as they used to. And so that really kind of affected our ability to partner with restaurants. So that really drove us even more so to go the D2C route because people were now staying home. Okay. So for about a full year and a half, you know, um, and still to some extent now on a certain level, people were still staying at home and they were now buying online. They were buying for their needs at home versus that restaurant. So we had to pivot our business towards being more of a retail and consumer focused one until everything can go back to normal in the uh, food service industry. That makes sense. So you set up a website, you've got all of the marketing done. What countries are most interested in your product? 
Uh, I would say the U.S. is um, one really big country that's very, very interested in uh, these sort of products. You know, it's it's new. It makes sense. Um, people are interested in sustainability. There's a high level of willingness as well as willingness to pay a little bit more for these products. And um, I think those are key things because being willing to pay more means that people understand, you know, it's not going to be the same price as paper or plastic, which has not only decades um, of opportunity to have efficiencies in terms of cost and sourcing, but also have, you know, really big backers um, in the industry, um, you know, kind of calling out the oil industry here, but really big backers to be able to get their prices down, to be able to have these long-standing partnerships with most of these restaurants and, and food chains. And so um, our pricing is going to be higher, but then in the U.S., some people understand that and they understand that in order to kind of do good or to be able to get people to change their behavior on a large scale, you might have to pay more now, but it's really resulting in something much better in the future. That makes sense. Do you surround your products with unlimited single-use plastics? Do you package it with single-use plastics? No, no, we don't. So we go uh, completely plastic free. So ours it, um, is made of paper, but it is uh, recyclable um, as well. So you can go ahead and throw it in trust. There's no like tape or anything that we put on it to, to secure it. So it's completely plastic free in that regard. Um, however, I will mention that, you know, we do use plastic pallets. Um, for shipping our product. One of the things I, I try to be uh, very transparent with people on is that we can't go completely plastic free. Um, you know, it's a, kind of impossible in this world if you want to have your business survive <laughs> from a cost perspective, but also um, if you want to try to make some change. So we're very, very transparent with that. We are, we're doing our best. And I think most businesses who are sustainable are doing their best. If they're telling you that they're completely plastic free and, and whatnot, and then you, you catch them, then that's on them. But if, um, if they're transparent, just like we are and saying that we're doing our best and we want to make a change in the future, but we can't do it right now because of uh, we have to put the business first and make sure that we survive long enough on a cost perspective, then I think that's something that most consumers are willing to forgive or at least understand. So that, that's something that we try to emphasize as well. Okay, folks, we're going to have a quick little pause from the action here to take a commercial break. This time, the commercial is going to be for my own company, Aloha Marketing. That's A-L-O-A Marketing specializing in website creation, digital marketing, all aspects of the digital domain, SEO, SEM, paid search, you name it. If you're trying to build a brand, you need all kinds of stuff to sell your things. You need a website, you need a social media, you need video, you need audio, you need all kinds of stuff to make it work, especially if you're trying to actually accept payment via e-commerce on your website or this or that or the other thing. Aloha Marketing is my full-service digital agency where we specialize in transforming clients with a mission to help them reach their goals. We tend to focus on nonprofits and mission-oriented companies, people who are making a difference in the world because we believe that with great skill in marketing comes an obligation to only amplify the stories that deserve to be amplified. So if you or someone you know is starting a business and is in need of world-class digital marketing, Visit aloamarketing.com. That's A-L-O-A marketing.com. Now back to the episode. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the problem isn't with plastic as a substance. It's a very yes. valuable thing that we need yes. to live and to survive. The problem is that it was never meant to be a single-use throwaway thing. There are many examples of plastics being great. It's just not meant to 
to be something that you literally take home from the store, and then that very second it becomes garbage. You said 15 to 20 minutes, but frankly, I'm shocked by that. I think it's got to be less because so much packaging we take home, we open it, and then it's in the trash. I would give it 30 seconds for the average life of single-use plastic, and that is clearly not ideal. Yeah, and that that is absolutely like uh, when I saw that statistic as well, I was pretty shocked because I was like, oh, on average, like you know, I take a before I used to take a plastic bag home, you know, ten minutes I'm walking home, then I just throw it right away, or like you know, I'm gonna use it as a garbage bag. So um, you're completely right. We're not like here to go ahead and fight against everything that's plastic in this world. I just don't think that makes sense. I think plastic is actually a very great material in terms of durability. Um, it's really important, especially for medical devices that go into the body. So in some in some cases, it's really necessary. But you know, it was first developed for military uses. You know, for airplanes. That's what it was meant for. That's the level of durability it was supposed to be used for. But then we took it and we just decided to mass commercialize it and use it for everything possible. And just because we can doesn't mean that we should. And so our our real vision and what we'll say over and over again is we're just focusing on single-use plastic and paper where it's unnecessary. And that's what we're trying to solve for. I think that's such a smart thing. And I don't know why it is that people who are, you could say, anti-environment or people who think that people like us are freaks or weirdos, we're not part of the mainstream I don't know why there's this belief that somebody has to either be 100% or 0%. That might just be a very American value system. I think in general, we don't talk enough about reduction of things. Mm-hmm. I think it, somebody said, oh, you're against plastic. Have you ever used plastic once? Aha! Liar! You use plastic in one piece, therefore. But it's like, no, that's not how this works. If we can reduce yeah. something by 90%, that's still better than not making an effort at all. But we so rarely talk in those terms, I find. Yeah, yeah. And you know what, it was kind of like a, um, I would say like a dogma that I was really um, intimidated by when I first uh, approached the sustainability category. Um, And I think the sustainability category has gotten really good at this at trying to fix it. But for a long time, it was like, oh, you have to do everything perfectly sustainable, you know, you have to not eat meat. Otherwise, you're a horrible person and you're just greenwashing or you're being, you know, a fake sustainable activist or something like that. I think that's a really, really harmful way to look at the industry as well as to advocate for the industry because what you're saying is basically you don't want anyone to attempt to do anything um, because it's not it's never going to be good enough if we have that sort of mentality yeah if we have that mentality people are just going to be turned off and they're not going to want to adopt anything we're just saying do what you can if you can switch to our product great if you have the choice and you want to put your dollars um, towards something good and you're willing to pay for it great if you can make this switch okay you know and that's why sometimes um, a lot of our assets that we uh, that we uh, take pictures of of our straws we will take pictures of our straws in in a plastic cup and some people will be like why are you doing that and we're like well at least they're trying to replace something they're reducing something in right. in this picture and we want to make sure that that message comes across like that's another piece of education that we really want to make sure people understand is that there's no gatekeeping to sustainability there's no wrong way to do sustainability anything is better and that mm-hmm. plastic cup would presumably be used at least a few times anybody who owns a plastic cup is using it more than just once and then trashing it. Yeah, usually. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's particularly bad, the single use. Um, All right, so let's talk a bit about the practical side of things. So you were on Shark Tank, Vietnam, 
And of course, you did uh, your Kickstarter campaign. So talk to me about both of those things. How did that go? Were they worth it? Was it a mistake? Do you regret doing those things? Um, I would say first off, um, starting with the Kickstarter campaign, because that's really what kind of launched our business. Um, you know, I thought it was um, a good idea at first um, until, like, you know, halfway through our campaign, like two weeks into our campaign, because Kickstarter campaigns are usually about 30 days, two weeks into our campaign, the pandemic hit and everyone, like all, everything all over the news was just COVID. And so it was doing well for two weeks and then it kind of fell off. Um, but we still kind of reached our goal. We did about 10,000, um, almost 15,000, sorry, in sales of our straws. And it was just our 50 pack of straws, uh, in 30 days, which we're like, oh, this is, this means people like us, <laughs> you know, like, or there might be something here. Um, would I do it again? I'm not too sure. Um, I think I went to this notion thinking that Kickstarter was this great kind of open forum where you can just put up a project and people who are really passionate about it will want to support it. But just like I think um, a lot of platforms out there, um, me being as naive as I was back then, um, I didn't understand that everything is an algorithm, absolutely everything. And Kickstarter is an algorithm. There are tricks of the trade. There are certain things on it that will make your project better or worse. You don't get equal exposure. It's, it's not like that. Um, and so um, I thought it was kind of like, you know, I, I thought it was kind of like eBay, you know, <laughs> like you, you put your stuff up or Craigslist, you put your stuff up and everyone gets equal exposure. And if you want to pay for more, you can kind of pay a little bit more, but otherwise everyone gets equal, equal exposure. It's not like that. So I would say, make sure if you want to do a Kickstarter campaign, make sure you really do your research, make, make sure you understand how it works, the ecosystem behind it, um, and make sure you plug into that ecosystem. I was just, hopeful that I could just put something up there and, and plan around it and hope that people would like it. So I, I, we did okay. I don't think we did the best um, that was possible because we didn't understand and I didn't understand it. So that's kind of on the Kickstarter side. <laughs> um, and then um, kind of on uh, the Shark Tank side. Yeah, that was, um, that was a very interesting sort of experience. So um, I wasn't at the time fluent in Vietnamese and I'm still not very fluent in Vietnamese. But uh, we had an opportunity to audition for the show. Um, you know, this is like my first startup. So I was like, I'm just going to try everything. I'm going to try to get as much exposure as possible. We made it through the audition process. I think they really liked our story, our mission. And, and I think I was also kind of an interesting um, character or angle because I was someone who was Vietnamese, not born in Vietnam, but came back to Vietnam um, and tried to start a business. And so I think that was an interesting angle. I actually presented all in English uh, for the most part. Um, and uh, I won't spoil it for anyone if you guys want to go watch it. It's on YouTube. It's <laughs> Shark Tank, Shark Tank uh, season four. <laughs> um, I think episode five. So you guys want to watch it, but I won't, I won't spoil it. But overall, it was very interesting. Um, you know, it was a lot of preparation, a lot of um, rushed sort of um, prep and, and kind of run-throughs. Um, and it was very much show, uh, I guess, it was very much so for a show. <laughs> um, at, but uh, we did learn some very valuable things. We got a lot of really great sort of tips. Uh, we met some great business people in the Sharks themselves who are very, very prominent business people in Vietnam as well. Um, and I got to meet a bunch of other entrepreneurs. So I can't say it was a bad experience at all because it really helped a lot for our business and exposure. And it helped you solidify your vision probably and understand more about what it is that you actually have to offer. 
Yeah, I mean, um, if you're looking for a lot of feedback in a short amount of time, just get on a reality show. <laughs> get on any. <laughs> it get, might not be the kind of feedback you want, though. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be, but you know what? I think it helped me build um, a yeah. pretty tough skin as well. Um, and so um, I think hearing that feedback from the public, whether it's positive or negative, really did help me sh- uh, shape my business. Also, it helped me shape myself as an entrepreneur, being a first-time entrepreneur as well. I wouldn't have guessed that our talk would be about advocating for reality TV, but that's okay. You know, they're so happy to hear that. We're going to take that yeah. soundbite and we're going to use it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you learned a lot of valuable things. I'm curious because I, I think a lot of people will want to know on this point. So you mentioned not knowing Kickstarter. You mentioned not knowing how it works. What do you know about how it works now that you wish you'd known? What are some of the tricks? How do you play that game? Yes. Um, so I would say, um, long story short, Kickstarter is like a community and just like any sort of community, you really have to get to know that community, be a part of it, understand it and connect with people in the community, especially leaders in the community. If you want um, something that you're trying to push for to be um, accepted as well for, as advocated for, it's kind of like, um, you know, clubhouse, like when you're trying to build your clubhouse channel and you're talking to people and you, you want people to join, let's say you're, your clubhouse and, and follow you on talks, let's say for business, right? You want to infiltrate all the business communities, talk to them on Facebook or whoever or wherever else and tell them, hey, I want to be on clubhouse. I'm going to be hosting this. I'd love for you to join. You got to put in that work, you know? Kickstarter is the same thing. Indiegogo is the same sort of thing. They're all innovators. They're all early adopters. They're all people who are looking for the next big thing or want to support the next big thing and want to be the first ones to get it and infiltrating that community and talking to that community is the most important thing for the success of your campaign. So making sure you build that community first um, is essential if you want your campaign to kind of take off. And then um, also, um, you know, some certain tricks of the trade I learned, for example, is like, you don't want to set a very small realistic goal because if you hit like, like, let's say you hit your goal within the first 24 hours. Basically, what will happen is the Kickstarter algorithm will kick in and you'll be put to the top of the page and you'll get out into newsletters and things like that. So um, I wasn't aware of that. Like, you know, I, I had no idea that that was something that happened. I just thought that, you know, if your project is good, people will go for it. If it if it hits in 72 hours, that's still really good. No, it, it doesn't work that way. You know, you hit in 72 hours, it's not going to do much for you. You hit in 24 hours, it's going to do amazing for you. Then you get all this free advertising, which is worth tens of thousands of dollars from Kickstarter and the community as well. And that will boost your project. And that's usually what gets projects up to the 100,000 million mark. Mm, you have to get that early exposure in. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if I had known that and if I had gotten people to advocate for me on like, you know, Facebook and Twitter and got some of these early adopters and known about the 24 hour rule, I would have done things completely differently. That makes perfect sense. Well, I want to talk, I want to switch gears a little bit now about how your personal life has changed. So you hinted in the beginning that you worked in marketing. Did you work in a CPG? Did you work for a big company? How has your life changed on a day-to-day basis? We talk about beating the often path. You emigrated, not by choice, to another country where you still are today, and you founded a business during a pandemic. That's pretty dang unusual. So tell me about how has your personal life changed? Oh, my personal life has uh, completely, completely changed. I mean, um, kind of on a career perspective, you know, it changed quite a bit, primarily because 
Um, you know, like I was always used to this corporate role for 10 years. I was in corporate. I worked at companies like Unilever and Bacardi, <laughs> that alcohol company, um, Spin Master, which was a toy company, LG. Um, I worked, you know, watching brands and products for them in Canada and around the world um, in a corporate environment. And that experience was so useful for me. You know, I, I still have, you know, friends from these companies as well that I still talk to. Um, but that was a very sort of structured environment. You, you kind of always had someone to guide you on what to do. Um, and then switching gears from not having that. And then, you know, for a little bit, for about three months, I didn't know what to do. I, this is the first time I didn't have a job for a while. Cause I moved to Vietnam, you know, a new country. I didn't think I was going to try to get a new job because I was only supposed to stay for a year. I ended up working for um, a like the largest fitness company <laughs> in Vietnam, you know, leading their marketing for a while as well. I, I did some market consulting on the side, but, um, you know, I kind of was a little bit lost about what to do if I if I didn't want to do a corporate job. And so it was a complete gear change because um, going into entrepreneurship, no one's telling you what to do every single day. No one's guiding you. No one's telling you what's right or wrong. Um, no one's giving you basically infinite amount of money, <laughs> you know, no one's giving you the money so you can go ahead and, you know, buy food and live every single day. You're going to have to find that yourself. So that was a really, really sort of big change. And I, I think I learned it really the hard way because for, you know, two years, I used my savings to kind of live off of, um, for two years, um, more than two years, actually. Um, like I lived without an income, you know, I was just really trying to do whatever I could, um, which I wasn't used to, I was always used to a salary. So that really changed for me. Um, and, but I would say that it brought a lot of things um, out of myself that I didn't know was possible. Uh, I didn't know I could present. I didn't know people could follow my ideas. I didn't know I could build a brand by myself. And so that really changed for me. Um, and, and a lot of that will, will um, impact, I would say, your self-confidence on a personal level. I went through every single, you know, stage possible from like, I'm the worst person in the world. I can't do anything. I'm useless to like, oh, I'm a superstar, you know? <laughs> so so I, I went through those phases too. So on my career side, that was a huge change. And then all, obviously from a personal level, like, you know, when, when you don't see your family for two years, when you're supposed to come back, when you leave your friends, your family, you know, your significant other, um, that's going to completely change everything. So um, I think on a personal level, I realized how lonely entrepreneurship was, how lonely moving to a different country was. You know, you're starting oh, your yeah. life over from scratch. Oh, yeah. I've you done know. this twice. Yes. Exactly. And then, you know, uh, what you do find is like sometimes those friends that you thought, you know, were for life and that you've made, um, you know, you come back two years later because, you know, the pandemic is finally over. And, and they don't know who you are or they, they don't see you and maybe they move on with their, their lives. Um, and it, and it's you've not moved only, on. You've changed yeah, so much. Yeah. But, you know, a part of you, um, you know, when you kind of leave a part of your life for a little bit and you don't mean to and, and things happen, you know, a part of you kind of is like, OK, what would have happened if I didn't? You know, uh, would my friends still be there? Um, at least I know my family's still there. <laughs> you know, my family's still there. You know, they don't have a choice, <laughs> I would say. But, you know. With your friends, um, you you kind of really, really start to value things a lot more. So for me right now, I value my friends more than anything. And I, I value finding the friends that really kind of stick with you because I realized after that, you know, um, I thought I had, you know, a lot of great friends, a great network. And I realized I had only like, you know, a handful of people that I can count on 
on one or two hands that I can come back to after two or three years of being gone, not by choice, you know? So, right. so that was something that really impacted me and affected me. And, and to this day that kind of, I carry that with me and I carry that with me on how I value the people around me as well. That's such a great insight. So a bit about the practical side of living and working in Vietnam. What was the weather today? What was the temperature today? Oh, I think it was like 30 degrees, which is like the normal kind of so temperature every single day. That's like what, in 80 in Fahrenheit? Uh, yeah, yeah, around 80 degrees. Um, okay. Oh, I think probably more than that. Maybe like maybe, maybe in into your 90s. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's the average temperature in Saigon, which is kind of in the uh, the south of Vietnam. And then in Hanoi, um, it's actually kind of a cold spell in Hanoi. It would be like spring over there uh, in the U.S. Um, but it's kind of in the like I would say in the 70s, the mid 70s. 70s. Okay. But that's considered like cold. All in, right. So in the you're, part, you've so. heated up a lot from Toronto. So that there's two follow up questions then to that. Uh, cost of living, is it cheaper? Is is it an insane idea for somebody? You're probably familiar with who Vishen Lakiani is. I believe that he went to Malaysia to start his business. Is it an insane idea for somebody who's thinking about the laptop lifestyle to choose to do this? Is the cost of living better? Is it easier to start a company or harder? Um, I would say first off, the cost of living, oh my gosh, it's so much cheaper here. Like, yeah, I could, I can get by with like two or three us dollars a day um you know for like what? breakfast lunch and dinner if i wanted to really really wow. like it's, it's quite easy you know um and you're eating like good meals like vietnamese food is delicious if, if you're not familiar with it there's so many dishes here that are amazing it's great and it's, it's cheap and the cost of living is very 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 affordable here um it would probably be i would say on average maybe like um, a quarter um, or even like a fifth, um, depending on your lifestyle, it could be like a fifth of what you would spend overseas. Um, you know, you can go to a, a nice, um, really nice restaurant here, upscale restaurant, really nice, um, like fine dining, um, and pay like $60 <laughs> for like you and another person. <laughs> um, and it would be upscale, you know? So like, uh, and that that's spending like a lot. <laughs> right. So um, the cost of living here is quite good. Whether or not it's a great place to start a business, I think that really depends on your mindset. Um, some people come here and they just expect to start a business because they're like, oh, it's so cheap. I can just hire cheap workers and, you know, I can start my business and it'll be fine. There are a lot of intricacies when it comes to working within a different country, a different, a different society, a different culture. Um, so I would say that, no, it's not it's not clean cut as being like you can go here and start anything. It's super easy. You really have to understand and appreciate the culture and appreciate the talent here um, and the business environment and understand that, you know, some things that you might expect in terms of structure in the West um, or don't exist or may not exist over here. And that might be a good thing for you if you can adapt to it. And in some cases, you'll be like, oh, but there's so many gray areas. I'm not comfortable with that. Then you're not going to be able to adapt to it. So I don't think there's an easy answer of whether it's easy or not to start a business here. It really depends on your mentality. That makes sense. So you've seen the movie Groundhog Day, right? You're familiar with that movie? Mm, I don't think it's, so. Okay. It's just a great Ooh, movie. From It has uh, Bill Murray from the 80s or 90s. And it's about a guy who relives the same day over and over again. No matter what he does, he wakes up in the same bed and he starts the same day over. It's a great movie. But let's just say that all of this was a dream. You're just airlifted into an office in Toronto back in the corporate world and none of this happened. How do you feel? 
Um, you know what? Uh, I think about this actually a lot, especially in the past two weeks. I would probably feel what I felt back then, which was miserable. Um, I, I literally, before I, I moved to Vietnam, I kind of, maybe it was like a, like a godsend sort of <laughs> sign or something, but I was miserable um, in Toronto. I hated going to work every single day. I didn't know why. It wasn't the job. It wasn't the people. It wasn't in the company. I just, I didn't want to live that life. Um, and I wanted something different. I didn't expect it to be for this long, but I wanted something different for a while. Um, and so when I take a look back on that um, and I take a look at my life now, um, is my life right now still very, very lonely? Um, of course it is. You know, as an entrepreneur, again, not being here with any family or any of my friends from back home um, or any sort of significant other that, you know, I might have had before, um, even though it's an extremely lonely experience as an entrepreneur, I, I can also say that I've done more things in the past three years than most people have in you know, their entire lives. And I've got to experience more in the past three years than I have in my entire career. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for the people I've met too. And so um, if I could live my day over and over again in the Toronto office, I wouldn't. I, I would do anything to get out of that cycle 100%. Well, that's definitive. That's a very clear answer. So anybody listening, and we've heard that story before, which is so powerful, but I, I do believe it. So if everything went right the next five years, if everything goes according to plan, where do you see yourself over the next five years? All right. So, um, yeah. So for the next five years, if everything goes super well, I would say, um, first off, the dream is to get eco everywhere, to get everyone's, uh, to try our product, to get our, our product to every country. So that would be the dream within the next five years. And if that's very successful, um, to hopefully be able to raise for my next round and then bring the business to the next step. Um, and then hopefully also to get onto the board of a charity, especially one that's very focused on children um, or childhood education. I really think that education um, is really the key to success and to the key to basically um, getting out of any sort of situation as well, especially poverty. Um, also, I'm a big advocate for getting uh, females um, that uh, funded in terms of their business. So any sort of female startups, I'm a huge advocate for that. So hopefully maybe being on some sort of board for that. And then third, probably starting another business. I think like Ooh. once you kind of get into entrepreneurship, you want to do that next thing. Yeah, and I think, yeah, and I think I might want to do something potentially in the same arena or maybe in something completely different. I, I you know I've been hearing about this NFT stuff that everyone's jumping on and I, I'm trying to see if there might be an opportunity there. So yeah, probably starting another business as well. <laughs> would you be, would you do an eco-friendly business? Your second? Uh, you know, that is uh, something that I'm thinking of already, <laughs> even though I, I still have this one. Um, there's another area, another category uh, within sustainability cool. that I'm very, very interested in and in potentially pursuing as well. So Super stay cool. tuned. I might be, I might be saying something about that soon. That sounds good. And are you going to stay there, do you think? You know what? I can't say definitively if I am going to. I think Vietnam has now become a really big part of my life. So I do see myself like at least coming back here quite often um, if I decide to like live somewhere else, at least coming back here quite often. But I cannot tell you what the future holds. I think at least for the next year or so, my life um, has to be here if I'm if I'm building um, equal in this business. But, uh, you know, you can't predict anything. If, if COVID has taught us anything, nothing is predictable. So nope. I'm not going to count 
uh, anything um, until it happens. You know, tomorrow aliens might come down and, and you know, decide to take me to Mars and I'll be cool with that. And so. then you're back on Mars <laughs> and then we come full circle back exactly, on Mars exactly. after full all circle. of that. And you're just hoping that they need drinking straws on Mars, exactly, which I'm sure exactly. they will when you discover the water that's been secretly hidden underneath the surface. Uh, well, that's all wonderful. For, I mean, we're reaching the end of our hour. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. I think, again, your story very, very much fits the model of this show. It's got the travel aspect. It's got the earth-forward, eco-friendly aspect. So many amazing pieces of this puzzle. So I want to give you the last word here, and I would like you to give the audience what is the most unusual piece of advice or the most unusual thing that you've learned through doing this that you might not expect and you wouldn't have predicted a few years ago back when you were on the other side? Oh, gosh. I would say probably the most unusual thing I've learned um, is just how much, like, like, you think you can solve a problem, there's always going to be problems. And that's something that I've talked to many different, actually, entrepreneurs, CEOs about is, like, um, everyone thinks that entrepreneurship is this thing where like you solve a problem and then everything goes great in your business. No, like every single business is um, what someone actually told me today is that every single business is one step away from dying. Every single business, yeah, um, one wrong move. And so that's why entrepreneurship is so hard because you have to continually solve problems and you'll never stop solving problems. So if you're surviving, you're already doing something right. And that's something that um, a friend told me today um, when I was kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. I don't know what to do. Um, they told me that today. And so that's something that I learned that um, I want to kind of hammer home to anyone who's like struggling with their business or just like saying like, I'm not doing too well on this. If you're surviving, you're already doing well. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're already doing well. That, that's that's an unusual thing to say because people are always saying like you have to hit these things you have to be successful and you have to like count, count your blessings and you have to survive for two years or whatnot that's not the case you're even a 10-year business is still struggling to survive every single day that is counterintuitive and empowering and awesome and it's a great way to wrap it up so again thank you marina what a wonderful interview this has been i really appreciate you joining me and yeah. No, thank you so much. Thank you uh, a lot for having me. And, and again, um, it was great uh, having a chance to tell my story. So That's right. And uh, us entrepreneurial folk, we can keep each other slightly less lonely through interactions like this. There are some people out there who are taking notice of what you're doing and who think it's cool. So now you can go back into your little cave and get back to work. <laughs> but at least one Absolutely. person out there is saying good job and keep it up and you know whatever that's worth but it's been a pleasure yeah absolutely no and thank you so much you know it, it's it's not always like this but you know it is one of the things that you face as an entrepreneur is sometimes that loneliness but having this entrepreneur community just like you know talking with yourself it just makes it so worth it and it reminds you every single day why you do what you do so keep going uh, <laughs> if yeah. you're struggling we'll, like i will we'll keep going yeah and with yeah. that the official podcast is over. Oh.